0: WQXR, in conversation. Concerts have been canceled and venues may be closed, but artists all around the world are still finding ways to make music and perform. My guest today, pianist and writer Jeremy Denk, is leading the charge in making classical music available for us all, even at a distance. From my bedroom closet turned studio and his home in the Catskills, we spoke last week over Zoom ahead of his first concert as an artist in residence at the Green Space. His series there is titled Bach's Well-Tempered Lens, and you'll be able to stream all three concerts online at WQXR.org. I'm Zev Kane, the host of WQXR's new release show, Latest Greatest, and you're listening to WQXR Classical New York in Conversation. I really enjoyed your last album, which was released last year on Nonesuch. It was called Circa 1300 to Circa 2000, and it's a concept album of sorts. You're tracing the history of Western art music from its very beginnings all the way through Bach, Beethoven, Chopin, Brahms, Debussy, into the 20th century, ending in the present with the music of Stockhausen and Philip Glass. And what strikes me about the curatorial choices on the album is that each piece and each composer seems to represent a sort of inflection point when something new is being done that moves musical language in a direction that was inconceivable before it. We've all felt so much whiplash in the last month, as COVID has turned our world upside down in every way imaginable. Do you think we're verging on a new inflection point now in the way we're experiencing and consuming and creating music, or is it too early to tell?
1: I think it's it's too early to tell. I think. It's not too early to say that it probably is going to have profound consequences for years and years and years about how we think about music. It, it took enough time for me just to calm myself down and to see the world around me in a sort of semi-normal way again. So I don't feel I have a good um, perspective. I will say that that album reads quite differently now. Any, any like specific
0: examples of, of crises past in which music has changed that you you're reflecting
1: back on? I don't know if I'm thinking about music history crisis. I'm thinking of. I guess there are moments in music that feel, you know, we create this amazing language. Humanity created this incredible, what do we call tonality or all kinds of things and style ways to express ourselves in music. And then at a certain point, everything gets established. And then inevitably, people feel like they kind of have to tear it apart in order to say things again. There's this cycle of building and and destroying that's essential to how music history is maybe more specifically then
0: you and so many other musicians have taken a precipitous plunge into the world of live streaming concerts Uh, you recently participated in a a 24-hour live stream called music never sleeps you're still the artist in residence at the green space and you'll be live streaming three concerts in the next month It has to be incredibly weird to go from playing packed houses to playing concerts with similarly sized, if not maybe even larger audiences, but audiences who are not physically present with you in the room. Bearing in mind how new all of this is, do you think it'll be liberating to be alone while performing or... Are you going to miss those hacking coughs and hearing aid
1: squeaks and uh, unsilenced ringers? I don't know yet. You know, the, the closest parallel I can think of is when I go in the recording booth with Adam Abeshouse, my usual producer. And, and those, sometimes it's periods of great despair and then moments of, yes, I've finally found it and let's put that in And you, so. I think it's going to be emotionally rocky, whatever, what it turns out to be. I should probably be doing a little bit every day of recording myself to get myself uh, worked up to live streaming calisthenics or something like that. I did buy an exercise bike, so I am trying to keep some part of my body from falling apart. Team Peloton now. I decided to cheap out. You know, I went uh, a little. No. I didn't, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm doing the Peloton app, admittedly. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, I, we, yeah. It's a slight cheat. Yeah. It's a damn good workout. Do you have a favorite instructor that you that you recommend? Oh,
0: I would. I would. I would never want to go on record saying I. I do have. I have favorites. I like them all for their own reasons. They. Yes, um, of course. I, yeah. I don't. You know, but they're they're in a similar boat, right? They're performing without an audience. They are having yeah. to having to generate even more of that artificial energy um you know what you were saying about practicing was interesting i wanted to know if there's any any music that you've been finding particularly comforting or inspirational or motivational right now either to practice or just to listen to
1: or things you're connecting with in a different way i couldn't deal with music for the first number of days when when it all started and and that was weird and i had a, a music less few days why do you think that was well I think I was just so shocked that this entire project you know vanished that the world was changing and I, I just couldn't process. And sitting at the piano I didn't have enough I didn't have enough concentration for for sure. I couldn't just think about my fingers moving or the simple things, you know, the almost like yoga practice things that you do at the piano. You know. Basically so you are a human is what you're trying to tell us. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't practice and then you know I started writing and I wrote a piece about about a Mozart that I heard when I was 12 and what it did to me. I wrote a little essay about that. And I sent it off to my editor, and he suddenly wanted to hear music. Which piece, if you don't mind me asking? You know, it's a passage in the Sinfonia Concertante for violin and viola, and there's a place towards the end of the opening 2D that's, for me, one of the ten greatest places in all of music, you know, with this long trills, crazy crescendo of trills, and there's this kind of glorious climax, and then there's this melting release that happens after that's unlike anything else in music that I can even think of. And I remembered so vividly how that passage made me feel and the process of it, the driving to something and then everything changes and falls away. So I do like music after all. You're
0: certainly making me want to listen to the Mozart right now, I can tell you that. I'd love to get into Bach. So as the green space artist-in-residence this spring, you're presenting now three livestream concerts all about Bach. The man, his music, how our minds process his music, it's called the well-tempered lens because it's all being looked at through the lens of the well-tempered clavier. I know you would planned all this well before COVID. Is there something about Bach, though, that may be particularly resonant in this moment?
1: I think so. Certainly Bach projects a feeling of control... He's incredibly brilliant at switching between sorrow and joy and discovering one from the other, the way that it switches almost in every piece from light to dark and the way that Bach controls the turn from one to the other, from major to minor and discovers one from the other and then emerges back. Do you have an example of that maybe in one of the Preludes and Fugues, something that really, one that's a favorite or that really jumps out as a clear example? in the C sharp the famous C sharp minor fugue in book 1 it's a very old school fugue with a dark and cryptic subject just a few notes that's the one those five notes and they're talking to each other and and there's this falling idea that becomes part of the discourse to just four notes falling Deedum. And there's this general sense of tragedy and and loss. But over the first, let's say, minute, minute and a half, he gradually and kind of imperceptibly makes his way to E major. And there's this cadence in E major that is one of the most ravishing things. never heard E major sound as beautiful as it is at that moment. And then in a moment, he turns back straight to the C sharp minor as if there's this instantaneous re-shutting down of of the light. It's the end of the first chapter of that fugue. And he was such a great master of using the girders almost like if you had a contractor who's building a house and somehow the beam, the way he puts the beam in the house, like, broke your heart. He had a way of using the fundamental building blocks in the most emotional possible way. You're thinking about the Well-Tempered
0: Clavier, it seems like you believe that it's a, a key to understanding Bach and his worldview. Can you just say a little bit more about that and why
1: it's so unusual and special as a piece, even among his oeuvre? Right. You've, it's funny because I was deep in, immersed in all this thinking, and that was until about three weeks ago. And now a lot of it feels not distant, but still a little bit buried, waiting to rebloom it's kind of a a universe. First of all, it's in every key, right? Almost like um, Noah's Ark situation where you want two of every animal to get on the boat. In a way, if you wanted to repopulate the universe with music, you might start with that piece. And another thing that I was thinking about, which is even in the first prelude, the famous one, I realized that one of the things he was doing in there was trying to ring the most out of seventh chords that he possibly could. You have your normal triads, which are three notes, and then you add a fourth note to a chord, and you get this incredible rainbow of possibilities. Each one is a different sandwich of 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 tones, and they all have different... Um, How do I put that? Like valences or different emotional resonances. Some of them feel more directed to other chords. Some of them feel like just beautiful for their own sake, kind of. Some of them are very dramatic and kind of disturbing and shake up, whatever. So I probably, that's too many things to answer your question.
0: Oh, I could could go all day. So... It sounds like you're gearing up to maybe record the Well-Tempered Clavier,
1: no? Oh, I hope so. Yeah, I've been working on it since the beginning of last summer pretty hard. And so we're going to try to revisit the Well-Tempered Clavier in 2122, because that's the 300th anniversary of the piece coming into the universe. By then, I probably would hope to have recorded it.
0: It's a dumb question, but I feel like I need to ask it. Do you have a desert island prelude and fugue or an upstate farmhouse retreat prelude and fugue that is is uh, unsurpassable?
1: I think it's fair to say the C-sharp minor fugue from book one is one of the greatest pieces he ever wrote. And, But I wouldn't choose it right now. You know, there are so many consoling ones. The prelude, of course, of the E-flat minor is one of the great and, and the fugue but the prelude to the e Flat minor is one of those things. And even now, that is a very sorrowful and tragic piece, but it has enough consolation built into it. Has it has just an accompaniment, simple, like almost strummed, almost like a lute is accompanying the... Main voice, yeah. So I, I might choose that one.
0: That was my guest Jeremy Denk and you'll be able to watch his upcoming concert series Bach's Well-Tempered Lens on April 7th, 27th and May 11th at thegreenspace.org This interview was produced by Max Fine and Rosa Gollin. Our technical producer is Curtis McDonald and our executive producer is Lucas Krohn Grimberga We'll be dropping more interviews over the next couple of weeks so sign up to WQXR Classical New York in Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and keep an eye out at wqxr.org. I'm Zev Kane. Thanks for listening.